Hi, Jazz. How are you doing today? Hey, good to hear your voice. Lulav, what cool or queer or Jewish things have you been up to recently? Well, time is fake, so I don't actually remember when this happened, but I think it was two days ago. We got some conservative trolls on our tweets. And... Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so you had like basic engagement with them to start, which was just like, yes, that is what this says. Yes, we're gay. <laughs> And I was like, oh, is it okay if I argue with them? And you were like, yeah, I don't want to, but you're welcome to. And we like shared quotes about King David and his relationship with Yohonatan and how it's very homoerotic, explicitly and textually so. Uh-huh. And it was just nice because I've done internet arguments and used to do a lot more of them when I was on Tumblr. Oh, no. <laughs> Listen, we were all 22 at one point. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't think I've ever so clearly won an internet <laughs> argument. What's your delineation? How do you know you won? So remember how there was the saying, don't feed the trolls back in the day that was like really popular amongst bloggers and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I was dating into a blogging network. I was not myself a blogger, but I was dating a blogger. And okay. a lot of the talk that my friends and I had was about comment moderation and stuff. Okay. And specifically responding to the concept of don't feed the trolls. On the one hand, what trolls are looking for is to get all of your energy used up and to use very little of theirs and to like make onlookers think of you as ridiculous. Mm -mm. And so to me, winning an internet argument with a bad faith actor means that the things that you are saying are for the sake of your community rather than for the sake of this particular person. Mm. And also the things that you say are funny. <laughs> Jazz made a meme, you know, all those like, what quarantine house are you stuck in memes that have been going around? Well, I know it was a month ago, dear listener, <laughs> but <laughs> that was a big thing. So Jazz made a version of that that was, which Seder table are you sitting at? And it had a bunch of like historical and contemporary Jews, specifically queer Jews, right? All of them were queer Jews, yeah. Amazing. Some of them were like biblical figures and some of them were like modern contemporary cool people. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of them, I think it might have been the very first name on the meme. Oh, absolutely the first one. Good. Was King David. And some dude replied, King David? Question mark. Like, Nothing else. No context as to what he was asking about. And so Jazz was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's in house one. Like, <laughs> like just we're going to pretend that the reason you're asking this is so that we can establish context or something. I don't know. And he was like, he was not queer. So that was where Jazz left it, I think, maybe? Yeah, because I remember it specifically because he said he is not queer, and I very much resisted the urge to be like, he's not anything now, he's dead. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is a silly thing to do, I'm gonna go to sleep. And instead, I got a message from Lulav, who was also monitoring our joint Twitter account, and also got that notification from the dude who was like here's a quote from the text if you want to argue with him and I was like I do not want to argue with him and you went for it <laughs> yeah and you said absolutely feel free to go for it I said carrot underscore carrot which is like the smiley face and then you said take two Samuel 126 with you if you're doing this and it was just wonderful <laughs> So yeah, using two specific text citations that you can interpret them in a no homo way, but it's kind of hard. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, here is why we feel comfortable calling David HaMelech a queer Jewish figure. And he just kept being like, oh, that's very homophobic of you. Sorry, it was, it was anti-Semitic because we were supposedly calling the Jewish community homophobic. And instead of engaging him on like, no, we're not anti-Semitic. It was like, no, we're not talking about the Jewish community. We're talking about you specifically. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. 
It was very clear that we were right. A bunch of people jumped in. I will say it's a weird thing a little bit. It felt like an odd dynamic that like new people find you on Twitter when you have arguments with people. (laughs) It's true. I think we got like 20 followers. It's bizarre. Like normally that happens when like I make a cool meme or whatever. It doesn't happen very often that we get in arguments with people. Not how I like using our Twitter account. Right. You know, like we really are here to like talk about queer Torah and queer Judaism and like whatever. (laughs) But but yeah, it is a weird factor of the way that Twitter is set up that people do actually find you more when you have arguments with people god normally i wouldn't get into it with people i would just block them and move on yeah but this was something where i felt like particularly well equipped to speak to it like it was unambiguous and pretty easy to just say things about so we were learning about how extremely into Yohanatan David was, along with the people who were also (laughs) reading this argument. It was fun. I am glad you had a good time. Thank you. I'm really glad that you had a good time when you woke up in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jazz, what's up in your life? What's cool and queer or Jewish? Well... I guess a couple queer and Jewish things have happened recently. I will say over the last week, I've had several cool queer movie nights. Well, so one of them was a movie morning in that I had two friends from New York who I was watching a movie with. And we were watching a movie that my friend Ricky found. I was watching with my friends Ricky and Sarah and having a running chat during the movie. Yay. It was a absolutely terrible (laughs) rom-com. Like truly atrocious. What was it called? I need to watch this. I think it was called Love, Marriage, Repeat. Uh, that sounds really bad, yeah. <laughs> it was really, really bad. Um, we had a great time. <laughs> it's on Netflix. <laughs> it Sorry. is, that's how we found it. One of Ricky's strengths is to like find things on Netflix. And she found this ridiculous movie and we watched it on Netflix party. That thing where like you all get to watch a movie together at the same time. (laughs) And it was the first thing I did in my morning because it was like noon in New York for them and like 9 a.m. here on the West Coast. And I like got up and maybe had breakfast. And then I watched this terrible movie (laughs) with my friends. Amazing. It was great. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you watch this week? Also, I watched But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an excellent good gay movie that, that several of my friends have been trying to get me to watch for <laughs> uh, years now. And I said that I would watch it during quarantine. So I uh, finally got around to doing so. And it was a great evening. Yeah. How did you expect to feel about But I'm a Cheerleader? <laughs> I also expected it to be like a humorous train wreck of a movie, like sort of like this terrible rom-com that I watched with Ricky and Sarah. But instead, it is this movie from the 90s, I think 1999, Mm -hmm. that stars this girl who starts the movie being like, I'm a straight cheerleader. And everybody in her life is like, it seems to be that you're a lesbian. (laughs) And then her parents send her off to like gay conversion therapy. Yeah. I didn't know any of the actors in it, except that RuPaul is there playing an ex-gay. It's wild. Also, Natasha Lyonne. She's in like a bunch of things. Yes. And I realized that later, but I didn't at the (laughs) time know that. Anyway, it was a real fun time. And also, I enjoyed the movie a shocking amount. Right? I had previously watched half of it and was like, <laughs> I didn't like this. But I think the thing was just that I didn't like camp five years ago. And it's yeah. very campy. Did we talk about the fact that you watched it with me? No, we watched it together. We also did that and watched that movie. Cool. And was that it? Just those two movie morning, movie night? Honestly, probably more than I'm forgetting. But sure. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to start the episode? Please. One, two, three, four. Welcome 
Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week we bring you queer takes on Torah. They're Jazz. And she's Lulav. And today we're going to talk about Behar Bechukotai. Great. This is our last one in Vaikra. Yeah, we're almost done crying. True. Yeah, so preliminarily, <laughs> how do you feel about this book now that we're all of the way through it? Oh, the whole book of Vaikra? Yeah. Well, it had more story than I was expecting, which doesn't say much about the amount of story in it. <laughs> yeah. Was the amount you were expecting none? Yes. Yeah. But yeah, there's some stuff that is objectively bad and some stuff that is really cool and some stuff that you really have to read into to make it not bad <laughs> is my overall opinion of the Book of Viacra. Great. I enjoyed it. Much more than I thought I would. Fair enough. It's like watching, but I'm a cheerleader. (laughs) In that you go in expecting, oh, I'm going to hate these laws. But then you realize, having been told by a friend what camp is all about, (laughs) slash legalistic text, you find yourself actually enjoying it much more. I am so delighted that your comparison is... Well, I didn't like camp, and, well, I didn't like Torah laws. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so big shout out to Cassidy Mosdy for helping me learn a love for Torah law. Great. Jazz, what are you thinking about the book as a whole? Oh, man. I probably (laughs) should have had an answer to that question lined up since I asked it, but I didn't. Mwahaha. Look, questions are important. Answers, eh. (laughs) Good. But um, yeah, you know, I think it's been really exciting to get to go through this. And also, I haven't had answers. Like, we've been really exploring it and like figuring stuff out together and thinking our way through it. And I really appreciated the chance to get to do that because otherwise... It is like a whole deal to try and get through. (laughs) And I think sitting with it and puzzling through it intentionally has been really positive. Yeah. So are you ready to summarize this last double Parsha? Yes, I am. Can you give me 75 seconds? I can probably do it in less, but I'd rather take my time pronouncing words because otherwise this is going to be a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Always a good time to remind people that we have transcripts anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Ready, set, go. We establish fractal Shabbatot. Every seventh year, the fields lie unworked. The seventh of these seven unworked years is followed by a jubilee of another unworked year and debt forgiveness. Real estate is held in family lines, and sales thereof are prorated to distance from a jubilee year when it will be returned to the family. The exception is dwellings within walled cities that are not owned by the Levites. Obligation to take care of the poor is also held in family lines. Don't charge interest and don't enslave, um, I would like to say people, but textually it is family members. You can enslave non-Israelites forever, but they're not allowed to enslave Israelites past the Jubilee. BTW, no idols. If you keep the commandments, you'll be well-fed and powerful and God will be present among you. If you don't, you'll be tortured progressively, including with cannibalism, until you repent because God wants to maintain the covenants. Then we talk about human equivalents for explicit vows and the exchange rates when people sell animals to the priesthood or sell or buy their land. And we double back to that bit from Shemot about the firstborn of herd animals being for Adonai. We finish out the crying of mitzvot by talking about what it means to tithe. That was so exactly on time. Yay, I'm valid. (laughs) Also true, unrelatedly. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, like, there's a surprising amount of content in here for, like, finishing out a book. I personally was not at all familiar with these parts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with some of it because I'm familiar with the idea of, like, a Shemitah year, what the English has here as a sabbatical year. And I did some Talmud learning about that a little bit, but I wasn't deeply familiar with the rest of it. Yeah. So the Shemitah year is the one when the fields lie unworked? Yes. Okay, and I didn't get a chance to get my hands on Hebrew for this reading. Mm-hmm. What is the word for jubilee? 
I was just looking that up before we started recording because I was curious about it because I was like, I actually don't even really know what the word jubilee means in English. Mm-hmm. And when you go look it up, what it means in English, it means a 50 year or 25 year anniversary. Like the definition comes from here. <laughs> You know, yeah. so in Hebrew, it's Yovel. So I think Jubilee is in some ways just like almost a transliteration. And it is related to being a ram's horn or trumpet or coronet. Yeah, like trumpet in particular. Yeah. So when Hebrew encountered Latin, and specifically in the context of Christianity, thanks, there was influence of like jubilant the same root word is jubilant so that people who spoke latin thought of it as a very joyous time mm-hmm. though it doesn't originally have anything to do with that well i mean ram's horn or trumpet is a thing about celebration yeah it notes here that it's used only for that or for like this jubilee year which is marked by the blowing of these trumpets cool. that's the connection there yeah, I just wanted to share the etymology from your friend and mine, etymonline.com. We get it through French and Latin and stuff, where the way that people have been thinking about the word jubilee is in the context of, like, jubilant. Mm. And while that is true, that it's a great time, you get your ancestral property back, you are freed from bondage. It's coming from two different sources. Fair enough. Okay. Do you know what Bihar means, by the way? Yeah, it means on the mountain. Oh, fun. This is distinguishing specifically that we've a little bit gone back in time, that these are all instructions that God gave Moshe on Mount Sinai. Okay. Yeah, I thought that this formulation was the same as every other chapter, but it's specifically Hashem spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai. Yeah, because last time we were in Amor, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Amor, and God said to Moses, speak, and it was like Amor El HaKohanim, right, like Mm -hmm. to the priests. And this time it's Vayedaber Hashem El Moshe Behar Sinai Lemor. Cool. It's interesting that I don't know when Parshot were invented as like divisions of text. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that the penultimate Parsha is the one where we go back and talk about where this is taking place physically. Mm. Well, this time it's the last one, right? So like, I think it is probably also (laughs) some significance to the fact that like, sometimes this can be a combined one that sometimes this is the last one in the book. And sometimes it's the second to last one. Fair. So basically, Hashem says to Moshe on Mount Sinai to tell the Israelite people, when you enter the new land, you'll observe a Shabbat. Not only the Shabbat of the week, but also you'll sow your field and prune your vineyard and gather in the yield for six years. But in the seventh year, you just let the field rest. You let the vineyard rest. You don't intentionally work the land. And you can just eat whatever the land makes for you, but you don't do new planting. Mm -hmm. And so I think similarly to how I've talked about Shabbat previously, where it's like you work the rest of the week to make sure that you are taken care of for the seventh day of rest. I think part of this is like, You make sure that you're setting things aside like Yosef did in Egypt so that in the seventh year, you'll eat. Yeah, I do think that that's explicitly part of it. But it's Mm -hmm. also here about like, it's good for people to rest and have a break. And it's good for the land for that to be the case. And we know that to be true. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. (laughs) So then not only do you have that Shemitah year, You also have seven weeks of Shemitah years, gives you Mm -hmm. 49 years. And then after that, you have an extra year of just chilling. Yes. And that is the year of Jubilee. Yeah. In Hebrew, it's the Yovel year. Okay. The English for the every seven years one is the sabbatical year. Thank you. Which still survives. Like that's still an idea. Like academics get a sabbatical year. Yeah. What's the word for year in Hebrew, Jess? And I think it's shana. Okay. Yeah, I'm just 
double checking in here. Yeah, they have it as Shanim. Yeah, it's Shana. Cool. Oh, Shana. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So basically, in contrast to how I set it up of having a year of rest means that you store stuff up towards that year. A lot of this is phrased as it's going to be fine. I will just provide for you. 2521. I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it shall yield a crop sufficient for three years. It's sort of reminiscent in some ways of the manna that they get in the desert where you have to gather up the appropriate amount each day. But then on Friday, you have to get a double portion so that you don't get it on Shabbat. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I know you're supposed to be asking questions, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that this is good taking care of the land. And I believe in the idea of building in rest. I'm interested in the idea of what it would mean to build a society where they, you know you can't do your main modes of production mm-hmm. once every seven years and like what it would mean to build a society that could withstand that if we had to be like, you know, oh yeah, the economy stops for a year <laughs> every seven years, we'd have a very different type of economy. Yeah, perhaps a better one where you more fundamentally care about people. Debatable, but maybe. (laughs) That has nothing to do with what's going on right now. Um, Um, How do you feel about it? I, it's the same thing that I have commented on several times where it sets up a very transactional relationship Mm -hmm. where if you do all the things right you will be rewarded in a very specific and obvious way. Mm. But that means that if people are not being rewarded in a very specific and obvious way, that must be somebody's fault for doing things wrong. And it's just a very transactional way of doing things Mm. that I don't like to think in. Yeah. Okay. That's how I feel about stuff where it's like, yeah, you'll get three times the thing on the very last year or the very last day or whatever. Mm. Okay. I have more questions, but later on. Okay. Yeah. So basically you got to be fair to neighbors every 50 years. Just go home. (laughs) And when you are buying land from somebody else, it is not a deal made in perpetuity. And so... You prorate how much you're paying for that land for the number of years left until the Jubilee, basically. Yes. Is that your understanding as well? Yes. For those of us who know nothing about certain subjects, can you define the word prorate for me? Yes. So to prorate, which you may be familiar with if you have ever been the person on the bill for internet and had to like change services or something... What that means is if you don't use the service for a couple days or a couple years in this case, you are charged less for that month. So that's, I think, a pretty solid definition. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward as a concept. But if you haven't heard it before, that can be like, what does that mean? I asked it because I saw it in your summary and I was like, that word is familiar to me, but I do have to double check to make sure I am right about its meaning. Yeah. And then I ask you to define it, both because like some of our listeners are teenagers and also because when I looked it up, it informed me that this is a North American specific term, which I did not know. Oh? So. Okay. What do other people say? I don't know. So. <laughs> okay. If you are a listener who is listening somewhere else in the world and you're like, we have a different word for the same concept, please tell me. I'm so curious. Please write in. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, if you don't use the word prorate, you could do like the Torah does and say, in buying from your neighbor, you shall deduct only for the number of years since the Jubilee and in selling to you, he shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. So like it's pretty straightforwardly what's laid out in the text, but I did very much have to ask the customer service representative what they meant when they said prorate the first time I heard it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so my question here is this bit ends, at least in the English over here in my copy with, do not wrong one another, but fear your God, for I the eternal am your God. And do you think that this thing about prorate property is related thematically to do not wrong your neighbor? And if so, how? And if not, why not? 
I think so. Because this Parsha and the next one both talk about fairness in economic dealings. There's an old saying about business, like, if neither of you are happy with the deal, you know it's a good one. (laughs) And basically the Torah is here saying, do not make up spurious reasons to charge people more for something. Like, Mm -hmm. meet each other in the middle. Okay. Does that make sense as a read? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It reminds me, I've probably said this on the podcast already before, but it reminds me of that bit from Talmud that's like, when you stand before God at judgment, you'll be asked six questions, and the first of which is, were you honest in your business dealings? Yeah, which makes sense. Because like, when you have a God who's not just the God of your household, who is the God of all people... You need to be working towards fairness in dealings. Mm. And so making sure that people follow the same rules when interacting with each other Mm -hmm. is just a good way to make it work both ways. Yeah. Maybe related to how the Shemitah year is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like when it says, you shall proclaim it throughout the land for all its inhabitants. But in Hebrew, it's de-ror ba'aretz. And I think... Drawer Baaretz is like closer to like everyone in the land. Yeah, that's cool. So basically, if your kinsman is having a tough time financially and has to sell off real estate because of that, the nearest kinsman who has money should pay for it, is my understanding of line 2525. I think that that's right. You have to bail out your family. So if the dude who's selling the real estate gets money back and has good fortune again, he'll prorate what he pays for the land mm-hmm. to like buy it back from the kinsman or the debtor or whoever it is. Oh, you skipped my favorite bit. Oh, what is your favorite bit? We have a bit in 2523 that goes, but the land must not be sold beyond reclaim for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. Yeah, that's a very good point, because this is a very important concept that kind of underlies all of the property laws that come up here. Yeah. It's not your land, it's God's land. Yeah. And to some extent, that gets wonky because it's the land of the clans, and property travels within family lines, which is weird. Well, that's the principle of inheritance in some ways. Yeah. But what if... We each took what we needed to survive and put in what we could give. (laughs) Yes. I mean, also, the text is very clear. All strangers resident in the land, owning things, kind of (laughs) fake. Yeah. So that's how it works for, like, property in general, is you get a family member who has money to bail you out. Yes. But in the specific case of a dwelling house in a walled city which is to say a living space in a space where there is a limited amount of space to build houses. Mm-hmm. Sorry to use space the third time in this sentence. Then selling it is permanent. Yeah, it notes that some things pass between families, but if it's in a city, it's not really expected to do that in the same way. Yeah, people who need to live in this city and have the money to pay for it do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's theirs now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is in contrast to dwelling places in unwalled villages where you can kind of build wherever, or at least there isn't a very, very finite amount of area to build on. And there's also the cities of the Levites, because the houses in the cities they hold, the Levites forever have the right of redemption to those houses. Do you have any questions till the end of 34? No, I feel like most of this is fairly technical. I'm most interested in what happens after that. So again, if your kinsman is in bad financial straits and you're bailing him out, basically the limit of what you can do then is have him be a resident alien living by your side. Mm. So what's up? What does your translation say for 35? For 35, if your kinsman being in straits comes under your authority and you hold him as though a resident alien, let him live by your side, colon. Okay. And I can look that up in the NRSV as well. 
Why do you ask? No, that sounds about right. I was just curious because mine translates that as resident alien too. Mm-hmm. It has sort of removed the gendering from it because it notes that this situation could conceivably happen to anybody, but it still yeah. translates this word achim, which is sort of literally brothers, like mm. your brother. It translates here as like your kin. Is there a different word for like mixed gender group of siblings or is it the whole male is default thing? No, it it's masculine default. I mostly actually wanted to highlight, however, that they translate this as resident aliens because the word here actually is also gare, which is the same mm. word that we saw over in 25, 23, that they translate as strangers. So okay. the same word that comes up in you are but strangers resident with me comes up here are held by you as though resident aliens. Oh, okay. It's strangers in both cases. Gare in both cases. Okay. Yeah, in line 36, when it says, but fear your God, I think I feel much better about that than I do about every other instance where fear your God is used. Because this is kind of establishing the same relationship between God and the Israelites as between an indigent kinsman and a well-established kinsman, which is that you need to not exact any interest and just like give them what they need to survive and ask only that in return Mm. because God is also doing that with you. Mm. I like that. Yay. So yeah, lots of statements of I am your God in this particular paragraph. (laughs) And then, okay, that's if your kinsman is just in financial trouble to start off with. Mm -hmm. You like loan them money. But if that continues and there's no conceivable way that they could ever pay back that amount of money, Uh basically, you can't make your kinsman a slave you treat them specifically as a hired or bound laborer and somebody who serves only until the year of Jubilee. Yes. Let's again remember a Jubilee year is a, not a very often. They're like only until then. That's once in a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is still basically slavery. I mean, it's not in the sense that it's not generational. Right. The Torah makes very clear that there's this sort of indentured servitude, and then there's slavery, which is worse and permanent and something that you are, as we see in the next few lines, totally allowed to do to people who aren't Israelites. That's fine. Though it seems complicated. (laughs) Yeah? Keep reading, because I would argue that it's, yes, people have read the text that way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that. Keep reading. Okay. So basically, yeah, don't treat your kinsmen ruthlessly. Oh, yeah, here we go. The male slaves and female slaves that you may have are from the nations round about you. That's where you may acquire them from. And you may also buy them from among the children of strangers in your land or from their families. Mm -hmm. And when you buy those slaves, they become your property. And for as long as you live... They are your slaves, and when you die, they are your children's slaves, which is bad, as we have previously established. (laughs) Yes, and also, as the text itself has previously established, even, Mm -hmm. part of why this is so odd, this chapter opens with Mm -hmm. Bihar on the mountain. They just got to Sinai out of slavery, like they just got out of there very recently. And then their leader goes up on the mountain and says, hey, do you know it's okay for us to keep slaves? (sighs) It's the same word, like the same things that have been used to describe them as enslaved. It's not like they're a different thing. And specifically the latter half of 46, such you may treat as slaves, but as for your Israelite kinsmen, no one shall rule ruthlessly over the other, which implies that the way that you treat slaves is to rule ruthlessly. Mm. And that that's totally fine as long as they're not in the in-group. Yes. The other thing that's going on here and that I'm thinking about and that I want to ask you about is that when it says in 45, this thing that's translated as you may also buy them from among the children of aliens resident among you. Mm -hmm. So that is vegam mibnei, 
Hagarim Amichem. Now, you may remember we were just talking about Garim. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Which means that we have now parallels between those resident among you with your kinsmen to you who are living by you and you to God. Mm-hmm. And now to these people that theoretically the text is telling you could also be enslaved. Yeah. So what do you make of the comparisons drawn there? It may just be that they didn't have another word to use. Oh, they do. They have lots of other words. We've come across some of them even before. They actually have lots of words to describe people who are not Israelites. Okay. Or lots of words, like when Aharon's sons are burned up for offering alien fire, um, Mm -hmm. they're offering Esh Zara. Like, Zara is like a totally different word for like alien or foreign or threatening or you know like yeah we have actually lots of other words one could argue that this is a meaningless distinction Uh, is i guess is that the argument you're making yes okay (laughs) i i just have trouble reconciling something where it's like you are strangers in god's land and you will be treated well and your kinsmen who are in dire financial straits are strangers in your land and will be treated well. And then there are strangers in your land who aren't related to you and they can be treated as slaves and ruled ruthlessly over. And I don't get how you can write the first two and then have this heel turn in the third one and not see those as connected. Well, I guess that's my argument that they have to be connected. They're intrinsically connected. They use the same words to describe them. And Mm -hmm. we have gone back in time specifically so that we can elevate that this happened earlier in the narrative when the people hearing this would have been closer to slavery. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can read this and just think, wow, the text is endorsing slavery. But I also think you can look at this narrative and say, even this text that theoretically refuses to condemn slavery... Even within it, there is the seeds of its own downfall because it has implicitly already set up this parallel of all of these people deserve to be treated like if we are all strangers in this land, then you already know how you're supposed to treat strangers and you already know what people deserve. And this isn't it. I think were I to tell a midrash about this, it would be that God laid it out very clearly, like, you are strangers in my land, and your kinsmen who don't have money are strangers in your land, and completely different non-Israelite people are also strangers in your land. And then Moshe hears this and is like, so we can treat them as slaves though, right? And the way that he tells it to people is unjust and non-parallel. And the reason that I would tell that Madrash is that, as you've said before, Torah is the word of God filtered through a man and then filtered through other men who wrote it down. Mm -hmm. And so in keeping with that paradigm, I would tell the story that this is not the direct word of God. This is something where the seeds are there to overturn it. But the people hearing weren't ready. Mm. Are you okay with that as a place to leave that discussion? Yeah. Okay. So there's more about like how you buy yourself back if you're a laborer. Oh, and specifically, if somebody who is a resident alien purchases your kinsmen, they have the right of redemption they can buy themselves back in a way that slaves seem not to be able to. Hmm. Specifically, the price is prorated for how soon the Jubilee year is. Mm -mm. Again, really hate that double standard. I think that in order to imagine the best God that we can, we have to think of all the creatures of that God as intrinsically valuable Mm. and so just because you were born into the israelites doesn't i think make you more worthy of fair treatment than somebody who happened not to be born into them sure yeah so that's my whole thing there 
Okay. And then we end with just a reminder that you shan't make idols. No idols. And that you shall keep Shabbat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We don't, interestingly, have a reminder about how much God hates wizards. (laughs) And then we come to Bechokotai, which is about the law's mine, or to the law's mine. My understanding from taking the grammatical pieces apart is that Choka is law. Mm-hmm. And so Chukot is the plural. Chukotai is my laws. And then Bechukotai is... Roughly in my laws. In my laws, yeah. And <laughs> this one starts off very straightforwardly with, if you follow my laws. Yeah. I will grant your rains in their season. You get a bunch of really cool stuff. Is there anything that you want to talk about beyond the broad brush strokes here? I mostly want to talk about the broad brush strokes things. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. (laughs) Yeah. So like I said in the short summary, if you keep the commandments, you'll be well fed and you'll be like militarily powerful in a really unbelievable way. Yeah. Can I ask what numbers you have there? Five of you shall give chase to a hundred, and a hundred of you shall give chase to ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Yeah, so I was looking at it, and I was like, so I know some of these numbers, but I don't recognize that last one, and maybe I just don't know numbers that big, whatever. And I called my mother over to ask to be like, is this, what is this? You know, your Hebrew is better than mine in some respects. And she was like, oh no, that number, Ravava, that's not a number. That just means a lot. (laughs) Uhrer, as the rabbits would say. I was looking it up specifically because I was like, the math seems off there. I was like, why in one case can you do 1v20 and in the other (laughs) case you can do 1v100? Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. God will establish their abode in your midst and will not spurn you. God will always be present. Yeah. So then it turns it around. If you do not obey God and do not observe all these commandments, if you spurn the laws given, God will wreak misery upon you. First, consumption and fever and your enemies eating your food and them just trampling you in combat. Even though nobody's chasing you, you'll run. Yeah, and then it gets worse. And then if you don't obey me, I'll break your proud glory I'll make the skies not rain and the earth be hard and dry so that you can't get food out of it. And then if you're still hostile to me, I will loose wild beasts against you, which I previously promised not to do. And your roads shall be deserted. Yeah. Does any of that sound familiar to you, Lulav? I forget. When did God loose wild beasts? It is one of the plagues. It's one of the ten plagues. Uh, it's one of the things that God does to the Egyptians. Yeah. And they shall bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. Uh-huh. Which uh-huh. are There we go with cattle disease. <laughs> yep. Cool. So, yeah, basically, if you break the covenant, you will be visited with the same wrath that was visited on the people who enslaved you. Yeah. And here's an interesting one. When I break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven. They shall dole out your bread by weight, and though you eat, you shall not be satisfied. There seems to be a lot of, like, inside baseball about what it meant to bake bread that is just not translating to my modern understanding. I mean, I think that the framework here is if you're baking it by weight and having ten people bake in a single oven you just Mm. don't have very much food yeah okay it can all fit in a single oven you don't have very much you're carefully parceling out so that everybody gets the same like little amount of flour that makes sense thank you for that image and then (laughs) if you still disobey me You shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your cult places and cut down your incense stands and I will heap your carcasses upon your lifeless fetishes. So some really graphic stuff right here. Yeah, yeah. Probably going to have to put a warning. (laughs) Yeah, that, yeah. It just keeps getting worse. It just gets 
worse. Somehow you're like, we reached the thing. And then they're like, nope, worse. So I think part of it is the punishments imply that you have been setting up cult places and burning bad incense, alien fire, as it were. Uh Uh-huh. And so this is kind of working off the whole thing of destroying other gods' idols that we Mm -hmm. see a lot, including with Eliyahu Hanavi. Mm. And the Midrash about Abraham when he was young. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so yeah, we'll keep going. God will spurn you, lay your cities in ruin, and make your sanctuaries desolate, as will the land be, and you will be scattered among the nations, and God will unsheath the sword against you. So this is an important thing. Because as I've talked about previously, a lot of this was written in the context of people who had been put into diaspora at least once. And so when we start off with the promise that your God will dwell with you and we come to if you're bad and we've gotten past the point of cannibalism, Mm -hmm. you will be scattered among the nations. Mm -hmm. I think that's... Like I was talking about before, like working within a transactional relationship to justify, oh, this is why things suck now. Mm -mm. Because obviously one of us did something bad or we as a group did something bad. Right. When we have this, we're probably not in diaspora yet, right? Like this text is not written in diaspora. Later texts Mm -hmm. are, and it's certainly later interpretation of this text is, but originally it is... I believe, more like you would have talked about previously related to maybe a priestly class thing. Mm -hmm. It is probably written with the framework of we'll have a homeland. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. My guess is this was written in the period of time. And again, this is a guess. I am by no means an authority on the history of like biblical construction. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think this is in the period of time when there has been foreign occupation of the homeland, Mm. which has recently been undone. And we've built the second temple, maybe. Again, I don't know. But that is my impression, is that like, yeah, we were scattered for a bit, but now we've come back together. And so we got to keep that covenant or it'll happen again. And so regardless of how it was written, I think that the whole transactional relationship thing does lead to some paradigms where like you do mitzvot because that is what will get you a homeland Mm -hmm. rather than you do mitzvot because of the absolute joy of keeping the covenant. Mm. We know that there's things that show up later about what does it look like to keep Shemitah year if you don't have farms. You know, like, there's people who are writing later who are like, okay, but we're not allowed to own land now. And so how do you do these mitzvot if you don't have land? Like, what does it mean to keep those commandments when you can't? And I think we get a similar thing right now in the difference between essential and non-essential workers and how some people have a bunch of time off or have been fired because they don't have a job anymore. Mm. But then other people are, like, just doing the same thing Mm. that they usually do. And then some, if they're medical professionals. Sure. Can you walk me through the parallel? I'm not totally seeing. My understanding when reading this is that only farmers let the farms lie untended. So usually what you're supposed to do is leave the edges of your property unharvested so that poor people walking by can pick food from them. And so in the Shemitah year, you just do that with the entirety of your land. And so the parallel that I was drawing is like the farmers engage in an extra bit of thing for Shemitah, but people who aren't farmers, it's like a normal year for them, Mm. is my understanding of how this particular Parsha is setting up Shemitah. Do you have a different understanding, especially if you have something about how people have interpreted Shemitah years since? It's complicated. And also, I think that Chava has an episode that has a fun breakdown of both Shemitah year and then some of what happens with it later. Maybe a couple episodes actually on that one, and I'll link to them. But yeah, I think that all of this gets more complicated, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. 
Yes. Which is when there is all of this language of punishment and this will go worse mm-hmm. and here's the deal you can make where things will go really well and then here's what happens when things go really poorly. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of analog that you think this works for? Does it work for the analog of a transactional business relationship? Does it work for the analog of people and the earth? Does it work for the analog of like a parent to a child? Like what's the analog here, if any, that speaks to you? So I think the general thing about keeping mitzvot is that you are being focused on right action and on stewardship of your environment and your people. So being in a mindset where you are very intentional about keeping mitzvot, regardless of if it's practical advice for taking care of your environment, having that willingness to compromise and like build in leisure and all of that stuff is a good way to go about things. And so if you are fair in your dealings and you build in flex to your business model, your business is going to do better. Mm. At the very least, you'll have better employee retention if you don't (laughs) make everybody crunch for like 80 hour weeks every week. Yeah. So yeah, an eye towards sustainability and right action is just generally a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so while I don't like thinking of it as there will be direct analogs where if you act correctly, you will see a specific result. Yeah. I think that generally speaking, if you act correctly, things will go better than they otherwise would. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. How do you feel? I feel complicated about it. <laughs> I'm sure that's unsurprising. I asked this question because I was trying to think through, is there any sort of human relationship I know of where this would feel acceptable to me? Oh, with all the punishment and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't think of a thing where the focus on punishment is a good thing. Yeah. You wouldn't want that between somebody you're in a business contract with. You wouldn't want that between a parent and child. You wouldn't want that between people who are in a romantic relationship. You wouldn't mm-hmm. want it between like a boss and an employee. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want it between any two friends. There's kind of no human dynamic where this makes sense to me. Yeah. The closest I get in some ways is a child who is throwing a tantrum. But even then, you don't knock down their block tower and... Sorry, I mostly mean it the other way around, where God is the child throwing the tantrum. Oh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Or in some ways, a sort of, this is so incredibly over-the-top language that it belongs in some ways to me in the realms either of, like, a teenager shouting at their parents, where the Israelites Mm -hmm. are the parents... (laughs) Or this is like people trading back and forth insults such that like you have in your superhero versus supervillain movie. God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Oh, okay. So a thing that this does put me to mind of. Yeah. Is the strategy in game theory called tit for tat. Okay. Where you start off benevolent in your dealings. You assume that people will cooperate and you do whatever you can to help everybody out. Mm-hmm. And if somebody screws you over, you screw them over. But as soon as they stop doing that, you go back to dealing benevolently and open-heartedly. Hmm. And so when tested in the iterated prisoner's dilemma against a variety of strategies, Mm -hmm. tit for tat performs the best. The participants in the experiments that were done end up the best in the long run. Mm. When you are dealing with a known strategy, tit for tat is not necessarily the right one to use. But yeah, that's my Mm. amateur understanding of game theory from like 10 years ago. Okay. Here's my one other offering then about this land, which is the thing that it does remind me of is climate change. Okay. Which is to say that's one of those things where like people might say to you, like, if you don't change what you're doing, there will be catastrophe and disaster and destruction. Yeah. And 
they're right, <laughs> you know? And in some ways, yes, it's a moral judgment if you don't want catastrophe and destruction. And that this is in some ways more of a consequences of your actions type of deal. Okay. But like that works partially because you don't see climate change as something the world is doing to punish you for being evil. Right. <laughs> It works because the world is doing its best and you are forcing it to do something else. But I am reminded yeah. of it partially because we've joined together Bihar, which is about treating the land properly in large part mm -hmm. with the Shemitah year and Bechukotai. And when they're joined together, part of doing the mitzvot is treating the land properly. And if you treat the mm -hmm. land properly and hopefully the people who are on it properly, including the Garim and the stranger among you, then maybe you are less prone to getting in a situation where the world is all messed up. Yeah, and I think that is borne out here. I can see why these two parshot are tied together, because it explicitly says the land will be forsaken of you, and it will make up for the Sabbath years that I guess it missed because you weren't keeping the covenant. Yeah, I think that's the implication that you're not treating the land properly. Yeah, so it makes up by not having you on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the last thing that I want to point out in chapter 26 is that no matter how nasty you are about the covenant, God will remember it. And as long as you come back with a willing heart, we'll reestablish the covenant. Mm. So there's your bit about game theory. Exactly. Yeah. At any point here, you can turn back and have the normal relationship with nothing held against you. But... <laughs> There is a lot of punishment if you continue on a way that does not honor the covenant that your ancestors made. So then we get to chapter 27. We have been recording for a very long time and should probably hurry. It starts with explicit vows to the Lord in equivalence for a human being. And the best understanding I was able to cobble together about this is from notes in the NRSV about like, well, you can't do human sacrifice. So instead, you give silver. So I think this is just like if somebody wants to promise the equivalent of themselves to God in hopes of later bounty, they pay the following numbers of shekels. Yes, I think that's correct. Okay. Do you have any questions about the specific numbers? I mean, they're messy and I don't like them and they're sexist. I... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't have a question. I just wanted to acknowledge that that's there. That's very fair. Yeah. So if someone is making a vow to Hashem of an animal, the specific one that they bring is going to be holy. They can't be like, oh, actually, I really liked Spot. Can you take Dottie instead? <laughs> and if somebody does switch them behind the priest's back... They still owe both Spot and Dottie. Yeah. <laughs> Why are all of your animals covered with spots? Hey, it's what Yakov did. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we made them look at lines and <laughs> they turned out really spotty. <laughs> uh-huh. So basically, the priest assesses the value of the donation. And if the person wants to get a specific sheep back... They can pay for it, but add on 20%, mm -hmm. which is pretty standard with temple dealings. You can consecrate your house to the Lord. And here I'm unsure if this is like donating your house or if it's like I am out of money and I don't have any kinsmen to redeem for me. So I'm going to sell it to the temple or if it is just like the donation. I think it is a combination of those things, which is I think you're okay. supposed to do a certain amount. Like, this is not exactly a donation. It's your taxes. And and if you can't pay your taxes in any other way, you can do it with the value of your house. You can mortgage your house. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then in order to buy your house back, you add 20%. Same thing with land. It's prorated according to the Jubilee year. So if you consecrate your land in the Jubilee year, it's the full price. But if not, it's however many years it will bear. Mm -hmm. And you can get it back at any time by paying a 20% surcharge on the prorated value of the land. Uh-huh. And then more things about paying your taxes. And then there's an interesting thing about the tithing, which is basically what you tithe from your flock. Uh -huh. is the 
tenth sheep that passes under the staff. Like you mm. hold your staff over your flock and they run past. And mm-hmm. then every tenth one is the one that you give to the temple. Yeah. And just like before with if you give spot, you can't swap in Dottie. It's just like every tenth one. And so what this means is that when you tithe, you do so irrespective of if it's good or bad. You tithe the things that are dear to you and you tithe the things that you feel okay just tossing out. And you're not the one who makes the decision as to which. Is that fair? Yeah, God is sort of implicitly making the decision. So, yeah, these are the commandments that the Eternal gave Moshe for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. That's it. That's the book. That's it. It's like a closing also of where we were at the beginning of Bihar. To emphasize again, you got them Bihar Sinai. Ah, I love that. (laughs) Thanks for pointing that out. So we come now to Rating God's Writing, a segment in which... We bundle up all our feelings about the Parsha, transmute them into a numerical scale, and set that in the amber of audio for all time. Oh, Yes. Lulav, out of 100 people routing enemies by swords, how many Mm -hmm. people would you rate this Parsha? So is this the number of enemies or the number of people who are routing enemies? People who are routing enemies. Oh, Okay. I am gonna say 50, because as somebody who comes from a Jewish family and a Goyish family, I really don't like the thing about how Goyim are significantly different in the way that they should be treated Mm. from the people of the covenant. Even if I weren't a half-sea, I would still hopefully feel that way. Mm. So yeah, I enjoyed a lot of things about this. There was a ton to talk about that wasn't just yelling about slavery, but also there's some nasty stuff, which I don't feel like I can personally redeem. Mm. So that's mine, is 50 rowdy boys routing their enemies. Mm-hmm. Jazz, you pass the entirety of the Torah under your shepherd's staff, and this is the 10th sheep that passes through. What is its name? And what is one fond memory that you have with this sheep? What? That's not... I know that it is your goal to give me ever more outlandish scales, but this isn't even pretending to be a scale. Okay. So this is a sheep which I am not super close with. It's speckled and... It's just kind of middle of the pack, never did anything super exceptional, Mm. and occasionally bullied the other sheep. (laughs) And I know it did that because I was watching when its sibling came over to nurse and it just knocked it down. Boo. (laughs) Also, it sometimes helps other siblings, but also it's a bully. And if we had to (laughs) sacrifice a sheep, I guess it's okay that we sacrificed this one. (laughs) wow good there's a lot of stuff in these parsha that i don't feel as well qualified to deal with this stuff with slavery you know we have a modern history of slavery in this country and like Mm -hmm. i know chattel slavery is different than biblical slavery torah slavery isn't necessarily race-based in the same way but still this is a hard one to reckon with yeah if there was ever a Parsha or a group of Parshat that called into question for me the differences between biblical slavery and American chattel slavery. This would be it. Mm, Yeah. The other thing here, right, is that like I'm thinking, I don't have a final conclusion about it, but I'm still thinking about this stuff about like what does it mean about how are you supposed to treat a gare? What does it mean to be a stranger and who is a stranger and how are you supposed to treat them when the text itself offers such contradictory things? Like, obviously, I think there's a right answer there (laughs) in terms of there being like, we are all strangers. And also some people are placed in a position where they feel that strangeness and are made to feel that strangeness more than others. And sometimes our texts and traditions reinforce that. And how do we struggle with that? Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking about this with you, Jazz. 
Can you take us to the class? Sure can. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivala, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by our excellent audio editor, Ezra Faust. Our full transcripts, as with every episode, are done by Deco and Jazz, and definitely accessible through our episode descriptions on Buzzsprout. I'm Jazz Twersky, and you can find me at WordnerKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Ohlone people. I'm Lula Varno, and you can find me at SpaceTruck6 on Twitter, or yell at me at PalmLiker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinaabeg. Have a lovely Kwejish day! <laughs> This week's gender is spoony in both senses of the word. This week's pronouns are it, its.